are listening to the final sermon in the series entitled Breaking Forth, Studies from the Book of Acts, preached in September of 2008 at Hokessin Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John. We're concluding our sermon series this uh, morning entitled Breaking Forth. Uh, the whole month of September, we've dedicated ourselves to investigating what is the church, and we've done that through uh, readings from early Acts. Um, I think Acts uh, does about as good a job as any segment of Scripture on defining what church ought to be. And so as we progress this week, we're going to close with a kind of asking an overarching question about the church, which is, well, what at the end of the day does church do? What is the point of church? And if you were here, or if you remember, in week one, we, uh, we addressed the foundation of the church. We said the church was built upon truth. That the historical crucifixion and resurrection, the ministry of Christ, our redemption by His great mercy, that all these things are historically essential to us calling ourselves the church of God. That if we don't preach those, we're not a church. And the second week in this sermon series... We investigated the Spirit. We said that the church is not only built on truth, but it's filled with the Spirit. And we looked at ways that we, we, need, we should pray that the Lord would consider and He would enable us through the power of the Spirit. And that everything that the church does comes because of the Spirit. And last week we looked at the fact that the church is comprised of people. It's comprised of us. And that our commitment to the church is a, is a devotion both to the Lord and His truth and to the fellowship. And that's where we ended last week, was this idea of fellowship. And, and I had a thoughtful question that has had me thinking about my comments last week, which is to suggest or to say that our faith is, is accomplished in community does not at all suggest that there is a personal faith. Right? For each one of us, our faith is very personal. And that's a, a legitimate way of approaching it. But to have a personal faith does not mean that we have an individualistic faith. That our personal faith is lived out within community. And the Lord works in us uh, through our community. But we arrive today kind of asking the question, well, so what, what, where are we now? So what does a church that's built on truth, with people filled with the Spirit, what do they do? What's the point of church? And that's the question we're going to look at as we close this sermon series. So if you'll pray with me, we'll go ahead and get started. So bow with me now. Lord, I pray your blessings on our time, on your words, on your scripture. I pray for the hearts that are, are leaning towards you, Lord, that you would capture them and bring them to you. Lord, and I just pray that your spirit would work in each person the way that they need to be met so that we might become a people that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you can uh, start turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some in the back there. We encourage you to read along with us. While you do that, I want to offer um, a reflection or, or something that, as I've been studying Acts, has helped provide me clarity in how to, how to see the church and how to understand how the church ought to be. And that is that I have found usefulness in observing that the church today is essentially the, the apostles of Acts. And I wouldn't push this idea too far. I'm definitely not trying to make some kind of categorical theological statement. But when we read Acts, and we see what the apostles did, it's daunting if you think that you're supposed to do what the apostles did. And I can tell you, it probably won't happen. 
The apostles were special. There was something unique about their, uh, the apostolic fathers. The Lord came on them in a special way. The Spirit empowered them in a special way. That's why we read what they write and not what just anybody writes. That's why we preach from Scripture, which is the writings of the apostles or those close to them, the writings that the apostles affirmed in their lifetime. That's what's in our New Testament. And so the signs and the wonders and the miracles that they did, it is somewhat unique to the apostles. It, it did happen outside the apostleship. Many signs and miraculous wonders, but by and large, they were the major practitioners of the powerful work of the Spirit in the early church. And I don't want to kind of transcribe that apostleship on you because uh, we are not apostles. But I would suggest that if we think of our church as the apostle, it might be a more useful way of understanding how we ought to live our, our, our lives out. It might provide clarity to say that we as a collective body do today what the apostles did 2,000 years ago. That through the service and the work of the church, we do the healing and the feeding and the preaching and the loving that the apostles showed in their own lives. And again, I, I think as a general rule that will provide clarity. I, I don't want to push it farther than that, but it's definitely a template that we're going to use this morning as we kind of read through the fifth chapter of Acts, and it's kind of the way we'll approach it. So if you will with me, in Acts chapter 5, I'll start, and again, we're trying to answer this question, what's the purpose of the church? What's the mission of the church? And we'll look at this, uh, this first element of that here, starting in verse 12, and I'll read through 16. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, this certainly is not the first time we've read something like this in Acts. If you'll recall, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the Spirit enters the apostles, what happens? They start speaking in the tongues of many languages and of the many nations, and they start proclaiming the truths of Scripture and proclaiming the truths of Christ, and many, many people are added to their number. It says on that day, 3,000 were added. Even when the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, Peter and John continued to do the same thing. They proclaim the truth of Scripture, and people are in some degree defied by how to even get around them because there's so much truth in what's being said, and people continue to be added to their number. And over the course of this month, we've read passage after passage after passage where Scriptures are faithfully preached and taught, and the body of Christ grows because of it. And this brings us to our first point this morning, that the church preaches truth. If you're looking for a, a one-phrase mission statement of the church of God, I'm not talking Hocus and Baptist, although I would hope and believe that our mission statement falls in line with this, that the church of God's mission is to preach the truth of Christ. That's what the church does. Now, you may have a small part in that, but the holistic mission of the church is to preach the gospel of Christ. It's happened again, it's probably the fifth or sixth time a reading like this has surfaced, and we're only in the fifth chapter of Acts. Now, it's easier said than done, and what I find 
is that the church is in constant tension. And I think you will feel it keenly when I say it, but the church is always in tension or always in danger of caring more for the people in this room than we do for preaching the truth. That when we talked last week about the, the church being built of people, we said there was this devotion to the truth and this devotion to the fellowship. And the natural trend is for us when we gather, even when we gather in Jesus' name, to naturally begin to care for one another and to be a little less attentive to the preaching and the exhortation of the truth. And I'm not saying that every avenue or venue of, or dimension of your faith needs to be a God-proclaiming, God-preaching venue, but I will say this. I would encourage you to look at the different places that you exercise your faith and ask this question. You know, in your life group or your small group, is it more about caring or is it about proclaiming the truth of God? It, it may be more about caring. That's okay. Unless in your Sunday school, it's more about caring. And in your weekday Bible study, it's more about caring. And in your conversation with other believers, it's more about caring. And in your daily devotions, it's more about caring for yourself. If you look at all of those different categories and you notice, I do a lot of caring for the body and very little proclamation of the truth or study of God's truth, I would consider you a, a Christian out of balance. And I would consider our church a church out of balance if we didn't address it. The church's mission is to proclaim the truth. That is the mission of the church. The caring for one another that we value so much happens because of and on account of the fact that we value truth. 1 John 4 says this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. And then it says, Because love is of God, and those who love are born of God and knoweth God. The idea is the love that we express to one another comes and is most real when we love God first. We're called to preach the truth. I want to, I want to turn, if you will, to, to Acts 6. We'll read Acts 6 here in a second, or at least a portion of it. And I, and I just want to express my concern on how easy it is for the church to forsake the truth for comfort. It's very simple for us to forsake the truth for comfort. It's easy for life group leaders or small group leaders or Sunday school teachers to bypass a difficult truth just because it'll make someone in your room uncomfortable. It's particularly easy for young, new pastors who so much just want a, a room of happy people. I think that's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy. You know what his exhortation to Timothy is, who is a young, new pastor? He says, above all things, dedicate yourself to the reading and preaching of Scripture. Because he does not want Timothy to be drawn from the mission of the church, which is to proclaim truth. Before we leave this teaching, let me read this in Acts 6. This is what I, I think this is a subtle yet profound truth about how this is the case. Acts 6, 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now tell me, what is the purpose of the deacon? 
Is it to care? I'd say that's the secondary purpose. The purpose of the deacon is to provide so that the preaching of the word is not neglected. Do you see that? The deacons aren't appointed because people need caring. The deacons are appointed because the apostles cannot fulfill the mission of the church, which is to preach and care for the people sufficiently. So they ascribe to the deacons the responsibility, the lesser responsibility, I might add, of caring for the fellowship so that the penultimate goal of the church, the preaching the gospel, will not suffer. If that were not the case, we might as well expect the scriptures to read like this. The apostles say, it is not good that the people are neglected while we preach the truth. So I'll tell you what, let's establish deacons who will continue to preach the truth while the apostles care for the people. It doesn't say that, and it shouldn't say that. And I would say, as you consider and in your travels and in your churches, you ought to ask that about the leadership. Is the leadership of the church a paid deacon? Or does he make the mission to proclaim and preach the truth? The purpose of the church is to preach the truth. Now let's see what happens when they do that. Continue to read with me in Acts 5. Starting in verse 17, we'll read a long time till verse 32, but it's good reading. So just read with me. Then the high priests and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. When the high priest and the associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came out and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other disciples replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of the sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They wanted to put them to death. This is the second point of our message this morning, that if the mission is to preach the truth, the result of preaching the truth will be persecution. The church will be persecuted when it preaches the truth. And I think this flies in the face of an attitude that somehow the world is on our side. The world is not on the side of Christ. The world is not on the side of Scripture. The world is not on the side of the church. We are not expanding into friendly territory. 
The church is not planting ground in a neutral territory. It is not as if the church is expanding into a vacuum. We know what is outside the church. It is darkness. The church is expanding into unfriendly territory. It's expanding into the world. It's expanding into darkness. And when the church, when the frontier of the church reaches darkness, it reacts. And the reaction is persecution. The scriptures talk about the prince of this age who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Time and again, Satan is referred to as the prince of this age. The world is darkness. In many ways, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul uses these terms. He writes in Corinthians, we do not wage war as the world does. He doesn't say it because we don't wage war. He says the war we wage is different. He says we use different weapons. Not that we don't wage war. The war we wage is different. He says through these weapons we demolish the arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul's saying the war we wage is a war of truth. If preaching truth is the mission, we wage this war that sets itself up to abolish any pretense against the truth. He says, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I've heard that, that phrase, take captive every thought, so many times in a devotional way. It is a combative phrase. Paul is talking about the war between the church and the realm of darkness, and he says, that is the captive that we take. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 to put on the armor of God. And speaking to Timothy in the second letter, he refers to him as a good soldier of Christ. Time and again, the apostles write about their striving and their struggling and their persecutions. There's entire chapters and letters dedicated to us appreciating that persecution is part of the Christian life. And I think it's worth remembering at this point that Jesus Christ was not very well received. When Jesus spoke to the world the truth, what did the world do? What was the world's response? The world crucified Jesus. Because the, the church is piercing into the darkness. So as we preach, let us remember that persecution is a sign that we're reaching into the darkness. The apostles write, Must we, we will obey God rather than men. And I pray that our church would do the same. As as tempting as it can be for us to care more for one another than we do for caring the truth of God is the temptation to accommodate the sociology outside of these walls lest we be pressured or feel pain. The church is constantly, and I don't mean we have to review this every 10 years, this is nearly a weekly ordeal to try to figure out how do we appropriately teach the truth when every other venue outside of these walls doubts what we're saying here. Education doubts what we're saying here. Our economy doubts what we're saying here. Our elections doubt what we're saying here. Should we just stop saying it? Some decades, or maybe centuries, definitely generations ago, I think we could safely say that the church in America is safely established well within the friendly confines of Christendom. You know, anybody my age knows they hear their parents. I once had a friend, he's my age, when he was a child and was crying, you know what his parents would do? They lived in Philly, South Philly. They would call the taxi driver 
the taxi driver would pull up, they would give the taxi driver their child to drive him around for two hours. It's a different world. It may have been a different world, but that's, I don't know what kind of world that was. But this is definitely a different world. Some of, years and years ago, decades ago, generations ago, we might be able to say that we are growing up in Christendom. We are not growing up in Christendom right now. And you are deluding yourself if you think we are. Our children are trying to be adopted by the world every day they step outside our home. This is no longer Christian territory. And so the safety that you and I have embraced or the safety that the culture of church has embraced is no longer something that can be had while we hold on to the truth. It used to be that we could be safe and preach truth. Now we're coming to the crossroads where we have to choose one or the other. And I pray it would be truth. We're called to preach, and that may result in persecution, but it doesn't mean we're not supposed to preach. I have Air Force culture in me, all over me, and uh, growing up in the Air Force, in the 90s there was this fad, it was, uh, you know, every, we have a fancy word, some fancy rank for it, but essentially the CEO of the Air Force uh, changes his stationery every now and then, and, and the new buzzword or buzz phrase that everybody had to repeat, the mantra was safety first. Safety first. Well, that is an absolute joke to anyone who flies an airplane. S- safety is never first. Anyone who would say safety first would never fly an airplane. Why would you do that? It was the silliest thing. We used to laugh. They'd paint it on our hangers, safety first. And we would say, stop the fleet. We're done flying. If safety were first, why would we fly? And I think we have raised a church that is safety first. I think we've raised a church that has become so secure and what we know to be safe that when it comes time to preach truth that might jeopardize safety, it's a difficult decision for us. It wasn't difficult for Peter or Paul or John or Stephen or Philip or Ignatius or Clement or the people that are on the frontiers of our faith this very day. But for some reason for the church in America, we're, we're actually pausing at this question. Now before I move on, I don't want to suggest that uh, we ought to roll up our sleeves and go pick a fight. I certainly don't suggest that. I think we should be wise and loving. I also don't want to suggest that persecution is a sign of health because there are many crazy dingbat cults that have come out of Texas in the past 10 years that have been persecuted. So persecution alone doesn't define truth. It just is. I would also say that we're not apostate because we experience seasons of peace. Our charter is not to worry about persecution. Our charter is to preach the truth. And if it's it's persecution we receive, then it's persecution we receive. And if it's peace we receive, then we ought not to take that for granted. We ought not to put the car in idle and just soak in the peace. We ought to maybe assume that God wants us to do something during time of peace. But persecution is not a metric or standard of success. It just is. When the church preaches the truth, it will eventually run into darkness. And when it does, it will be persecuted. So let's see what happens when the church is persecuted. I'll begin again in verse 33. When they heard this, this is the Sanhedrin they're speaking of, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. 
Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will, be, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Do you see what Gamaliel is saying? Gamaliel is saying, under Theodos' case, you chop off the head of the movement and it dies. Under the case of the Galilean, you chop off the head of the movement and it dies. He's saying, we just chopped off the head of the church. Jesus is dead. So if it's of men, it'll fitter out. That's what Gamaliel is saying. He says, give it time. If it was really of men, then the death of Christ will mean the death of the movement. But is that what you and I see happening? I would say 2,000 years after the death of our leader, the church is still vibrant. We're not barely surviving we're thriving. We're not barely holding on. We're not some corrupted or distorted New Age movement that kind of attaches itself to the name of Christ. We are living the life of Acts. The writings that happen here in Acts, days, weeks, years after the death of Christ, we ascribe to as truth. The church isn't dying. The church is vibrant. And this is our final point, that the church of God is invincible. The church of God is invincible. I think how often you or me or we are so gentle with how we weigh in on the church because we somehow fear that a mistake that we make might end the church. That we got to be so careful with the church. The church is this massive spirit-filled object that you and I cannot topple. It was here before we came. It will remain before, long after we leave. And God's question is, what do we do with it while we're in it? How faithful will we be to proclaim the truth while the church is here? Because it isn't going away. It's as robust and it's as perfect as it has ever been. G.K. Chesterton, in writing uh, this, one of his signature books called Orthodoxy, is wrestling with the church. And in the church, he describes it as this monolithic granite mountain. And if you read Chesterton, you know he's, he says it way better than I'm saying it. But he's talking about this massive mountain of the church to, to kind of describe its invincibility. But then he puts a twist. He says, but this mountain of the church is actually standing upside down, balancing on its peak. And Chesterton's goal in discussing it that way is to say that this invincible church is something that's so crazy that it could only exist if filled with the Spirit of God. That there's no reason why the church ought to exist today. It has been persecuted and driven out of society after society. If it wasn't the Romans, then it was the barbarians. If it wasn't the barbarians, then it was the Vikings. If it wasn't the Vikings, then it was the Moors. If it wasn't the Moors, then it was the Muslims. If it wasn't the Muslims, you pick it. The church has survived it again and again. And because of the spirit, it holds the church in this delicate balance on its head. The church is invincible. And thinking about that, I wonder why do we not own the invincibility of the church? Why do we reel in defense when issues come up in society? 
And I wonder if it's because you and I don't really buy into the victory of Christ. Maybe we buy into it in our own life, but I don't know if we fully buy into the fact that Christ has already won. The victory is done. The problem with Gamaliel's point is that the head of the movement was not cut off. The head of the movement is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He was resurrected and he lives and his spirit lives in us. Our church is victorious. And I wonder often, often in my life, why we do not behave as though we were a victorious church. I think to others it appears as hypocrisy or cowardice or something worse. The fact that we claim to have truth, but yet not, we don't live with the courage and the boldness as though we knew what that truth was. We've been called to preach. We've been called to preach the gospel regardless of whether there's been persecution, regardless of whether there will be pain or suffering. Our mission is to preach. We're not supposed to preach with arrogance. We're just supposed to preach. Or with enmity. We're just supposed to preach. God has called us to preach in hard times and in good times. He's called us to preach with love and with mercy. But he has called us to preach. That is our mission. That's what we're supposed to do. We can do that despite persecution. We can do that with no care that the church, the church is not in jeopardy. The church will do just fine. Do you know what happens in the 7th chapter, the 7th and 8th chapter of Acts, when the, when the Sanhedrin comes down hard on the church? Do you know what happens? He stamps, the Romans and the Sanhedrin stamp on the church, and what happens is it scatters it across the land. It would be like if our government came in today and said, shut this church down. You know what would happen to this room? It would turn into 25 house churches. And we would start to meet. And you know what? Before long, it would be 25 significantly larger churches. And the church would grow through persecution if we are dedicated to preaching the truth. If we're not dedicated to preaching the truth, this church would dissolve. To the glory of God, it would dissolve. We're just called to preach. The book of Acts opens in the first chapter with this final conversation of Christ. And in this final conversation of Christ, the apostles are speaking to him right before he ascends back into heaven. And they say to him, Lord, Lord, when will the kingdom of God be established on earth? They feel it. They see the persecution coming. They see their their Savior who had been crucified and resurrected. They want to know when the victorious kingdom will be on earth. And you know what Christ says? This is Acts 1, 6 through 8, if you're interested. Christ says, don't worry about that. That's for the Father to worry about. The kingdom and its presence on earth is for the Father to worry about. But this I give to you. And he gives him this charge. He gives him this mission statement. He says that the Spirit will come on you in power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and into the ends of the world. That's the mission statement. The apostles say, when is the kingdom coming? Jesus says, don't worry about it, go preach. I'll send you the Spirit, go preach. Your mission is to preach. And I think we do so much more worrying about the kingdom and so little preaching. Our mission is to preach. I feel like I can't close a a series like this uh, without balancing out some of this here with, this is the mission of the church. I don't know how you fit into this mission. I would say we are not the apostle. The church is the apostle to return to that idea. So you may not be called to be a preacher or an evangelist or an apostle. 
But we fit somewhere in this mission. And I would caution you not to use this, the, this paradigm that I'm about to offer you, but that I think we're all guilty of. And it's this. When I grew up in the Air Force, kind of the vernacular paradigm that we used to understand the Air Force was that it was this great spear. And at the, at the pointy end of the spear was who? Those people who did the killing. Right? The trigger pullers, the button pushers, the bomb droppers, the fast movers, they're on the tip of the spear. And then way down the shaft of the spear is all the support functions necessary to make that happen. Whether it be my crew chiefs or the weapons loaders or the logistics or the military pay or the clinic or the post office. It's this huge shaft of support with the thought of to support the very tip of the spear that does the mission. That's the mentality. Among the lame minds of the Air Force, that's the attitude. It probably exists in many other venues, but I know it from there. And the result is twofold. First of all, is if you're on the tip of the spear, you get a huge head. Because you're the tip of the spear. And you get a leather jacket, and you walk around on base. And you, you, you know, we get, fighter pilots all have these dorky little salutes like that. You know, it's like you don't have time for people. You know, it's like, what's up? That's how it is in the fighter pilot world. Why? Because we're on the tip of the spear. You know, we, yeah, we walk like that. You know, and when we're like in our foreign countries, we walk totally different than Europeans. They like kind of, they're in groups of two, and they kind of, we like line up in this four ship wall, and like, superpower, walking through, tip of the spear, here to save you. And we walk through these continents, that's why people don't like us, because we do that stuff. But we're on the tip of the spear. So when you're on the tip of the spear, it is not difficult. You wake up, and you breathe, and you eat, and you sleep the mission. I don't need to be motivated. I don't need any general to come in and tell me I'm doing a good job. I don't need that. I'm on the tip of the spear. But the farther you move from the tip, guess what happens? A little farther away, they don't feel the mission so much. A little farther away, by the time you're at the logistics squadron, they question that there is a mission. And by the time you get to the post office and the clinic, there is certainly no mission. The mission is get home at four. That's the mission. I've seen it all my whole career that the, the focus on the mission is directly correlates to your distance from the flight line. Your physical distance from the concrete flight line affects people's mission. I have been on my own base in my own clinic with one of our clinic nurses who did not know what airplanes flew out of the base. There's only one airplane. It's the flight line. It's, go look at the big noisiest thing, and that's what flies out of the base. But they're so far away from it, ah, I don't know. And I wonder if that's the church. I think the church has adopted that vision almost holistically. That we think way out on the frontier of Christendom, somewhere in the dark recesses of the Amazon, or way over in Djibouti, or somewhere in God-forsaken former Soviet Union, there's people who are on the tip of the spear. And they're the ones who are doing the preaching and the gospel and the proclaiming. They're the ones who are doing that. But as you move back on the shaft of Christendom, you kind of get towards, you know, uh, preachers. We're pretty far up here, I guess. You know, but then you get to like, well, I do nursery at Hocassin Baptist Church. Way over here. You are part of the mission. In fact, the Bible, I think the Lord goes out of his way not to use imagery like the spear. There is nobody in the church that is on the tip of the spear. We are part of a body of Christ. 
God doesn't use the spear as an image. He uses the body as an image. And he says that in the body there are different roles that all work together for God's glory. He says the head of the body is Christ. And Christ directs the body to do what is needed. And he talks about where would the eye be without the hand? And what would the hand do without the foot? That all of us are in need of one another. And that at some points the body is about the hand. But at some points the body is about the eye or about the foot. It's varied and it's related and it's tied together and the whole body is equally committed to the mission. And so you may not be a preacher and you may not be an evangelist and you may not look at all like an apostle, but you cannot escape the mission of the church, which is to preach. Whatever it is you do in the church, it ought to be in perspective of how is the ultimate mission of God being accomplished. If you're teaching three-year-olds, you're teaching them about God. You are raising the next missionaries. In my youth group at this church, I think I can count five people in my youth group that are in ministry or have been in the mission field. In my youth group of about 12. We are raising the people of God. The purpose and the mission of the church is to preach His truth. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.